It was a gloomy Tuesday on September the 19th, 1709, in the South China Sea. Young Richard Glasspool pitched another bale of water from his small ship, grumbling at the small leaks of seawater trickling in from all sides. At half past five, with his single-mast ship now relatively dry, he and his men finally set sail from Macau, heading for the island of Linton to secure a pilot. As fourth officer aboard East India Company's ship, Marquis of Ali, the 20-year-old had been given seven men and tasked by his captain, Brooke Kay, to return with the pilot who knew the many inlets and islands along the South China Sea. But constant squalls and heavy rain hammered Glasspool's crew. And without an anchor, compass, or provisions, they were soon blown far off course. Lashing together their muskets to make an anchor, Glasspool and his crew stayed close to the land to wait up the storm. By mid-morning on Wednesday, the hungry, waterlogged crew spotted two Chinese merchant boats anchored in the bay, and Glasspool, encouraged on by his Chinese interpreter, followed them. But as evening approached, the crew discovered, to their horror, three large pirate vessels anchored off the coast, who immediately gave chase, jeering loudly that they would catch and kill the entire crew. Using quick thinking, Glasspool deftly evaded the pirates and anchored close to land for the night, under the cover of darkness. At daylight the following Thursday, the Chinese interpreter indicated to the ravenous crew that they were now miraculously only a few miles from Macau. Navigating along the coastline, Glasspool noticed a cluster of men on the beach armed with pikes and lances, and a large fleet of boats anchored on the opposing shore. The Chinese interpreter assured the Englishmen that they were just fishing boats, and that not only would Glasspool and his crew find provisions, but also a pilot who could take them to Macau. Knee-deep in seawater and stomach growling with hunger, Glasspool ordered the crew to sail for the vessels. As he bore up on them, he noticed these large boats were brimming with men standing angrily along their long, winding decks. Again, the Chinese interpreter repeated that these were just harmless Chinese merchants aboard merchant junks and salt boats. But to the crew's horror, instead of receiving a friendly salutation, a large rowboat raced after them, came alongside, and twenty savage-looking villains leapt aboard. In each hand, they held a short sword, one pointing at English necks, the other pointed at their chests, and all looking to the commanding officer, waiting to either kill or desist. Seeing the lack of resistance by the English crew, the officer sheathed his sword, and the others immediately followed suit. Glasspool and his men were dragged off their boat, thrown to the deck of the large junk ship, and chained to the heavy deck guns. These savages demanded that the officer in charge identify himself. Cold sweat broke over Glasspool's brow as he offered himself. The Englishman was seized along with one of his men and the interpreter, and forced aboard the pirate chief's vessel. The chief himself was seated in a large chair, dressed in purple silk, and sporting a black turban. He was a stout, commanding-looking man of perhaps 30 years, and drew close to Glasspool, snarling as he inspected the Englishman and questioned the interpreter as to who these men were and what their business was. Glasspool spoke up, saying that they were just famished English sailors blown off course from Macau. Suspecting lies, the angry chief declared that he would torture the interpreter for the truth, and that he would have put the entire crew to death. Just before the order could be given, one of the ragged pirates stepped forward and spoke hurriedly with the chief. Glasspool could make out a few English words, and the junior pirate then pointed out at Glasspool's gold buttons along his shirt. The chief nodded and barked out an order. Soon a steaming bowl of brown rice was brought before each of the Englishmen, 
and the chief himself then spoke again to Glasspool. The nervous interpreter stammered that the chief now demanded that Glasspool write his captain for a ransom of $100,000, or within 10 days he would kill the entire crew. As Glasspool and his men hungrily gobbled up their first hot meal in three days, an oncoming boat approached in the evening darkness and hailed the chief's vessel. And after a brief exchange, the chief gave orders to set sail immediately. All through the night and early morning, the pirate fleet sailed until Glasspool could make out the island of Lantau. His translator gulped, telling Glasspool that he had heard the head admiral of all the pirates was anchored there. And Glasspool confirmed this as he looked out to see over 200 vessels and a captured Portuguese brig lying in wait, many waving a fearsome red flag. After a series of exchanges with the admiral, the chief came to Glasspool, his mood visibly softened, telling the Englishman that if he were to write to his captain for $70,000, the chief would send them all to Macau directly. The interpreter whispered that the chief did not dare to move further until he consulted the admiral, and with good reason. The head admiral was displeased that the chief had captured Englishmen, claiming that it would motivate the English, a neutral party, to join with Imperial China, and had ordered the chief to ransom Glasspool and his men. Just hours earlier, Glasspool and his crew had faced certain death, and now suddenly, the young officer had hoped that he would live to see London again. And so, after a long series of negotiations, a sizable ransom, and 11 weeks and three days of captivity, on December 11th, 1809, at 7 p.m., Glasspool and his crew were received by a grateful British welcome party. As the exhausted Glasspool sighed with relief, he wondered to himself, who was this pirate admiral who had had such power over these savages? As he later wrote, it was surely a most daring and enterprising man. Welcome back, Snowbirds, to another episode of Brutes, Broads, and Bastards for a second installment on our Pirate series. Now, before we get started, I'd like to challenge a few of our assumptions as to who pirates were and what we think they look like. When we think of the image of a pirate, we tend to think of a scarred European man with a parrot on the shoulder, a peg leg, an eye patch, sailing the Jolly Roger on the treasure-laden ship. And just last week, I painted the picture of Captain Bartholomew Roberts in his fine crimson clothes, a bright plumed hat, and two pairs of pistols dangling in silk straps over his shoulders. And as Richard Glasspool first heard mention of a head admiral of pirates, no doubt he thought of a similar man. After all, who could control such a savage pirate chief as the one before him with just a few words? Surely it had to be a cruel, formidable man. But what if I were to tell you that this man was not in fact a man at all, but a woman? And what if I were to tell you that this woman was not only a female pirate, but the most successful pirate of all time? In terms of riches, ships taken, and success at sea, not a white European man, but rather a Chinese prostitute, turned businesswoman, turned fearsome pirate queen. Yes, today we're taking a deep dive into the life of Ching Shi, as she became to be known, who was without a doubt one of the most successful pirates of all time. At the height of her power, she ruled over the largest pirate fleet ever seen in history, some 70,000 men on 400 ships, and held an iron grip on trade across the South China Sea. She was a master of trade, strategy, and diplomacy, and throughout her career, she humiliated Imperial China, rival pirate factions, and Western colonial powers to 
such an extent that she was known as the Pirate Queen of the South China Sea. And when confronted by a seemingly hopeless situation against all three forces, she pulled off one of the most unbelievable scores of any pirate and ended life on her own terms. So let's get into the story of Ching Shi, the Pirate Queen of the South China Sea. To understand her meteoric rise, we first have to get a sense of her impoverished background and the state Ching Shi was born into. Ching Shi was born as Xiang to a poor fishing family in 1775 in what is today Guangdong province, which lies along the southern coastline of China. In name, this province was ruled by China's last imperial dynasty, the Qing. By the time Xiang was born, the Qing Empire was at its zenith, ruling over roughly one-third of the world's population and with the largest economy on the globe. As early as 1685, the Qing had legalized maritime trade along the southern coast and established a series of customs stations at major port cities such as Canton and Macau, trading in tea, silk, textiles, spices, and opium with Western powers, Portugal, and Britain. The rapid rise in trade led to the explosion of market towns and an emerging merchant class, which drew many rural peasants to coastal towns in hopes of finding better employment. As a young woman, Shi Yang found her way to the port city of Canton, where she worked as a prostitute in what is called a flower boat, taking the Cantonese name of Shi Huang Ko. As new coastal merchant towns like Canton developed along the Pearl River Delta, so too did these flower boats. In Canton, these beautiful boats served as clubs, music halls, gambling dens, and brothels where Chinese merchants and officials came to conduct business and satisfy their earthly desires in a luxurious floating palace surrounded by gorgeous, genteel flower boat girls. For Shi Huang Ko's family, as with many poor rural families struggling to feed their children, selling their daughter to a flower boat owner offered the chance for her to be well fed, live and work comfortably, and mingle with the rich and powerful and with any luck, catch the eye of a wealthy Chinese merchant or official. That is not to say that there were no risks for flower boat girls to be abused or to catch sexually transmitted diseases, but work aboard a pleasure boat offered their daughter an opportunity for social advancement that was completely unavailable to peasant farmer families at the time. Likely being sold at the age of five or six, Shi Huang Ko was taught how to charm and entertain powerful Chinese men, and when she reached puberty, she began working as a prostitute, using her wit elegance, music, poetry, and sexual prowess to captivate wealthy Chinese merchants and senior officials. As Shi Huang Ko grew up aboard a Canton flower boat, radical changes were unfolding on the open waves of the South China Sea that would come to radically alter her life. The Qing government's initial efforts to indirectly dominate coastal trade by empowering a few local merchants backfired in the 1780s as these privileged elites became increasingly corrupt and incompetent administrators. Having been shut out by these corrupt elites from access to legitimate trade, impoverished commoners began turning to pirates to sell their goods. With nearby rebellions in Vietnam paying skilled sailors as privateers, and with an ever-growing demand for more illicit trade routes, an explosion of piracy erupted on the South China Sea. With the Qing government too distracted by internal rebellions, some pirate crews became even so powerful that they began to involve themselves in legitimate merchant life, even enjoying the same pleasures that Chinese officials and rich merchants had aboard these luxurious Canton flower boats. In 1801, one notorious pirate captain, Zheng Yi, commanding the fearsome Red Flag fleet, 
spent the night with a certain Shi Huang Ko aboard her flower ship. Enamored by her charm and beauty, he allegedly proposed to marry her on the spot. Her reply was that she would agree only if he issued a formal contract granting her 50% share in any of his treasure and 50% control over his fleet. Accounts vary in their description, but it seems most likely that after their rendezvous, Zheng Yi sent a pirate raid to seize her from the flower ship, where she was taken to him and was then married to the pirate captain. Following their marriage, she took the name of Cheng Sao, meaning wife of Cheng, and became his equal partner in running the infamous Red Flag Fleet. While he conducted military operations, she operated the fleet's business activities and expertly started a protection racket by securing payments from salt merchants for safe passage across the South China Sea. Using his military prowess and reputation, Cheng Yi began binding together disparate Cantonese pirate gangs into a massive federation of between 40 to 60,000 pirates on 400 junks, arranged in six fleets, each with a color blue, green, black, white, yellow, and red. During this time, the couple also made moves to shore up family connections, having two sons of their own and adopting a daring and popular young pirate, Zheng Pao, quickly became Cheng Yi's legitimate heir and the second-in-command of the Red Flag Fleet. To those living in Qing China, it would have been unthinkable for a woman to participate in public life, let alone lead men. But the majority of pirates in the Red Flag Fleet came from poor coastal villages, where social practice enabled women to inherit property. And with her leadership skills and success in business, she was accepted by the pirate crews. For the next six years, Zheng Yi and Cheng Sao rampaged across the coastline with their fleet, extorting protection rackets, shoring up coastal support, and seizing an iron grip on trade across the South China Sea. But all was not to last. In 1807, a massive typhoon hit the fleet off of the Vietnamese coast, and Cheng Yi was swept overboard and drowned. This left his widow Cheng Sao, now called Ching Shi, meaning Cheng's widow, in a very precarious position. Realizing she needs to act quickly before other power-hungry pirate captains made a move, Ching Shi expertly maneuvered her way into a leading position in the fleet winning the support of factions loyal to her husband, including members of his family, and within two weeks announced her most powerful alliance, marriage to her adopted son and commander of the Red Flag Fleet, Cheng Po. Some sources have presumed that she and Cheng Po had long been lovers before her husband's death, but whatever the full explanation, Cheng Shi had his full support, and this tipped the scales in her favor. And so, by 1809, Ching Shi was in full command of over 800 large junks and a thousand smaller ships, nearly 70,000 men. Even though she nominally held the fleet's leadership, Ching Shi recognized that she needed to unite this rabble of pirate crews with the new code of laws. Her laws addressed discipline aboard ships, collection and distribution of booty, punishments for disobedience, and rules for dealing with female captives. Any pirate who disobeyed a superior's direct order was beheaded on the spot, recaptured deserters had their ears chopped off, and any spoils taken as booty were to be registered by an accountant, then distributed by the fleet leader, with a 20% cut going towards the original pirate who had seized the goods, and the rest going to a public fund 
Villages that supplied the Red Flag fleet were forbidden to be plundered or extorted from. First-time offenders were flogged. Subsequent offenders were then put to death. And interestingly, the pirate code protected female captives. Pirates who took a captured woman as a concubine or wife were expected to be faithful to her, and pirates caught either raping or having consensual sex with a female prisoner were immediately put to death. Richard Glasspool, our British prologue protagonist, taken by Xing Shi in 1809, later wrote that the code gave rise to a force that was intrepid in attack, desperate in defense, and unyielding even when outnumbered. With her pirate code now enforced, Ching Shi extended her stranglehold on maritime trade across the South China Sea by expanding her protection racket to all merchants and issued the following to coastal villages or towns. Pay up or burn. Under her new leadership, the Red Flag Fleet set about securing an iron grip on the South China coast, capturing coastal villages, plundering British and Portuguese colonial ships, and setting up a steady taxation system and supply chain with coastal towns to readily fund her fleet. Ships that wanted to trade in the South China Sea either paid her tax or were plundered. And so from 1807 onwards, Jing Shi's hold on trade in the South China Sea was so dominant that it caught the attention of the Qing Emperor himself. The Qing leader, called Jia Qing Emperor, was enraged to think that a mere woman was controlling such a vast amount of land, sea, trade, and people that he claimed was his. But there was little he could do about it. The Qing had no navy, and their ill-advised attempts to load up merchant ships with soldiers ended in crushing defeats at the hands of Qing Shi's Red Flag Fleet. Her disciplined and hardened crews would lure a fleet into ambush, then encircle their prey with cannons blazing as they sent sleek ships to board the enemy vessels. And so when the Qing Emperor claimed control over the South China Sea, it was truly Qing Shi and her Red Flag fleet who held complete control over all aspects of trade, and she robbed, levied, and taxed villages, market towns, and cities from Macau to Canton with impunity. Nothing proved this point more than when in 1808, Qing Shi and her fleet killed the Emperor's provincial commander-in-chief, Li Cheng Kung with one of his senior commanders openly murdered by these infamous pirates, the Qing Emperor could no longer turn a blind eye. And by 1809, he nominated a new Governor General Bai Ling to crush the Red Flag fleet. But even before Bai Ling had set out on his new assignment, the Pirate Queen of the South China Sea had her eyes on a new prize. Qing Shi had long craved a direct attack on the lucrative Pearl River Delta, its shores brimming with rich trading ports like Macau and Canton. And by July 1808, she launched her invasion. Baiting Canton's defensive fleet into battle, her crew smashed the fleet, leaving the path to Canton wide open. And for a full year, she sacked the Delta in a bloody orgy of pillaging and violence. One of her powerful allied fleets, the Black Flag Fleet, was said to have killed 10,000 villagers in a single expedition. Neither Qing officials nor Western powers seemed able to resist her, and in 1809 she captured Richard Glasspool, an officer of the East India Company, who later write of his captivity under Qing Shi. Back in Guangzhou, Governor General Bai Ling had set about with a new strategy called Chengbi Qingyi, which was designed to cut off the flow of food and supplies to the pirates. As a naval blockade was established along the Pearl River Delta, Bai Ling ordered that salt was to be transported overland instead of by sea, 
and rice boats to sail in armed convoys, as well as gunpowder manufacturers to reinforce strict inventory tracking. Bailing also organized and resupplied village militias, and arranged joint expeditions with the Portuguese and British against Qingxi's pirates. Feeling the tightening of her supply lines, Qingxi initiated a series of raids along the Guangdong coast, from Macau to Guangzhou, for 10 weeks, before leaving Chengpao, her lieutenant, in Canton with the fleet, while she sailed to the island of Lantau for repairs after a scuffle with the British ships. But to her horror, in November 1809, she looked out from the beach to see four fearsome Portuguese men of war, along with a staggering 60 war junks and 35 repurposed fishing vessels. With her war junks beached on the shoreline and only a smattering of merchant small ships at her disposal, she sent out an immediate call for assistance. And luckily, Chung Pao returned with the Red Flag Fleet, but brought bad news. Their ally, the Black Flag Fleet, was not coming. And as a result, they were horrendously and horribly outnumbered. Trapped in the bay, surrounded by their enemies. You see, this turned out to be a ruse initiated by Bai Ling with the intention to draw out Chung Pao away from Canton and to pin all the pirates in one place. With her fleet pinned down, Ching Shi and her other crews took cover as the Qing fleet began a ferocious barrage lasting two hours, only to cease when one of their ships caught fire. For two days, Ching Shi and Cheng Pao waited and prayed for the winds to change, but no change came. On the second night, Ching Shi peered out to see a staggering 40 fire ships plunging their way, loaded with gunpowder and ready to set her fleet ablaze. But she and her disciplined crews kept their heads and efficiently put out each fire ship before it came to wreck the fleet. And then, a miracle. The wind changed directions and began blowing the two remaining fire ships out to the Qing fleet. Seeing her moment, Qing Shi ordered the fleet to make ready to sail, and the Red Flag fleet blitzed past the Qing Portuguese blockade, using old ships as shields against withering cannon fire, and reached the open sea. After a harrowing nine-day blockade and against overwhelming odds, Ching Shi had lost only 40 men and not a single ship. While a stunning escape and victory for the Pirate Queen, Ching Shi realized that times had changed. No longer was the Qing Emperor distracted by internal rebellions. His efforts had dried up their supply lines, his pardons were fueling pirate defections by the hour, and his new European allies had much more powerful ships. Recognizing that her power would only weaken further, she decided she would take a pardon now on strong negotiating terms. Ching Shi sent her ambitious terms directly to Bai Ling himself. She wanted full amnesty for her pirates. They would keep all their spoils, be allowed to join the Qing army, and receive funds to establish themselves. Furthermore, she demanded that she and her husband be granted a squadron of junks to use in the salt trade. Bai Ling was stunned. How could this washed-up pirate queen be so bold and demand so much from me? When he balked at the offer, she then proceeded to light up the delta in a furious pillaging attack and arrived at Canton to demand to meet with him in person. In the negotiations, he attempted to whittle away her demands, but she threatened to go back to sea, and in the end... He gave in to every single demand she had. And so on April 20th, 1810, she and Cheng Po surrendered their entire fleet consisting of 17,318 pirates 
and 220 war junks, and amazingly, each were given a full pardon, allowed to keep all of their loot and join a legitimate profession. In a world where pirates at best could expect to live a few years of rich living before dangling at the end of a noose, Qingxi not only saved the lives of thousands of her pirates, but managed to secure them a comfortable transition into their careers under the imperial regime. As for Qingxi herself, upon accepting her pardon, she was given 120 ships to engage in the salt trade and was formally recognized as wife of Chengpo, despite existing restrictions forbidding widows from remarrying. Her husband Chengpo was made a lieutenant in the Qing army and worked to clear the seas of the remaining green, yellow, and white flag fleets. In 1813, the couple welcomed a son, Cheng Yu Lin, and later a daughter, and lived happily together until Chengpo died at sea in 1822. Jingxi then moved the family to Macau and opened a gambling house and brothel, as well as kept herself involved in the salt trade. In later years, she served as advisor to Viceroy Ling Zizhu in battling the British during the First Opium War of 1839. And finally, in 1844, the infamous pirate queen Qingxi died in her own bed, surrounded by her family. Yuan Yunlun, a contemporary employee in Governor General Bai Ling's service, later wrote his seminal work on the pirates in 1830, and gave an account of Ching Yi's bravery in facing the Qing government alone with her following speech. If His Excellency, a man of the highest rank, could come quickly to us quite alone, why should I, a mean woman, not go to the officers of government? If there be any danger in it, I will take it upon myself. No person among you will be required to trouble himself about it. When we speak to her legacy, Qingxi's life marked the end of the last great surge of piracy in the South China Sea. And yet, the painful lessons that her pirate fleet had taught the Qing seemed to go unnoticed. In the years that followed, the Qing Emperor continued to neglect the need for a strong imperial navy, and would later suffer horrifically to the British in the First Opium War, which had devastating impacts on Chinese society for generations. Qingxi's meteoric rise from prostitute to pillaging pirate queen demonstrated not only her mastery of trade, strategy, and diplomacy, but also her determination in the face of overwhelming odds. A clever businesswoman, capable commander, and expert negotiator, Qingxi thrived in an environment that she created for herself at a time when colonial empires were extorting South China's coastlines and violent rebellions were tearing apart the mainland. For years, she humiliated Western colonial powers, Imperial China, and rival pirate factions, raking in unprecedented riches and wealth. And even when she realized her time was up, she cleverly secured a stunning score that allowed her to live out her final years in peace and prosperity, something that very few pirate leaders have ever accomplished. She will no doubt go down in history as the greatest pirate who ever lived. Well, that's the end of the line here, Snowbirds. Thanks so much for listening into this episode on Ching Shi, the Pirate Queen of the South China Sea. Listen, a few things to mention before wrapping up. First, if you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. It helps others who love history hear about our podcast, and thanks so much if you can do that. 
Second, the podcast website is up and running, so you can head on over and see some of the extra maps, images, and content to go with each episode. Third, and finally, this episode is the second of a three-part series on pirates, so stay tuned for our final episode. And finally, thanks to all of you guys for listening in and supporting the podcast. It really means a lot to hear your feedback and your recommendations. So, as always, make good choices, and we'll see you in a fortnight. <laughs>